Welcome to the Colby Cast, episode 191. Thank you for joining us. Today, Jordan returns to the Colby Cast to help us welcome Mike Aquilina to the show. Mike is the vice president of the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology, the author of more than 50 books, an expert in church history, a graduated homeschooling father, and so many other things that it's impossible to list here. From the impact of the Incarnation to the wisdom of the Church Fathers and many other topics, we're happy that you can join us for this conversation. We hope that you'll enjoy the show. Hi there, I'm Bonnie, Colby homeschooling mom of four lads and lasses, liturgical musician, popcorn, and podcast fanatic. And this is Stephen, homeschooling father of five and chief homeschooling officer for Colby Academy. And I'm Jordan. As a product of homeschooling, I'm proud to teach Greek and Latin for Colby Online and serve as the Alumni and Public Relations Director. All right, today I'm joined by Stephen and Jordan. Hi, Stephen. How are you today? Doing well. Very Doing very well. Getting close to Christmas as we're recording this. So right in the middle of, right in the middle of Advent, actually. But Yes, but the time speeds up at this time, at this point of the year. <laughs> it's it going does. More and more quickly. And Jordan, how are you today? I'm good. Uh, well, with Stephen mentioning the date, that means that I'm in the thick of uh, grading exams and entering in grades and all that stuff. So getting close to the break. Uh, yes. Yep. We're recording this during Colby's finals week. Online students are taking their finals during this week and into the next. And some of our homeschool families might be doing the same. That's the case at our house. we got some of each going on here. So, yep. We're very happy to welcome Mike Aquilina to the Colby cast. Mike, hello. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me on. I'm honored. I, I'm really glad to get to to visit with you. I've been uh, taking in lots of your offerings. You're a prolific author, um, broadcaster, journalist, uh, musician, so many things. I Every time I name something like that, I the thought runs through my mind that I'm leaving out several other things. So <laughs> let me just turn it over. Would you please tell us about yourself and oh, oh my. <laughs> your areas of interest and so forth? <laughs> uh, well, I'm, I'm, um, I've been married for 38 years. I, my, my wife, Terry and I have six children and our seventh grandchild will be born in January. Uh, we, we, we homeschooled, uh, every child all the way. Um, and uh, and we're we're done with that now. All of our children, our adults, um, live in a small town near Pittsburgh, and that's kind of my base of operations. We've lived here for since the year after we got married, actually. So so it's, it's it'll be coming up on forty years. And uh, I'm a freelance writer, so I work out of here, and I do a lot of different kinds of writing. I've written a lot of books. I've written lots of articles, and I write songs, and and uh, and I've had a good time doing it. Most of it I do here in this this uh this office that looks like a great workspace looks very uh um inspirational and conducive to so your prolific outfit so um i've i've been aware of you for a long time i've picked up your books here and there and i'm working through a couple right now as i was mentioning to you before we started recording it the ones i have here with me are a history of the church and 100 objects and how the choir converted the world um could you tell me what drew you to your areas of interest okay uh, my areas of interest, uh, I, I, I mean, I, I was drawn to this area very, uh, very young. And by area, I, I guess I mean ancient history. Uh, I'm not an academic, but I'm a journalist. Most of my most of my beat has been has been the ancient world. And uh, how was I how was I drawn to that? Well, my my earliest memory of um, of of an inclination in that direction was when I was in elementary school and. Back then, I think I was in fourth grade, we had two bookshelves, two bookcases in the back of the room. One was the boys' bookcase, and the other one was the girls' bookcase. And on the boys' bookcase, there were there were all kinds of sports biographies back there, and there were books about World War II. That, that hadn't been very long before. Uh, and uh, and there were there there were uh, there were other books. Cowboy books were big too. You know, books about Kit Carson and about pioneers and that sort of thing. And there was a, a book that told the story of Heinrich Schliemann's discovery of Troy. Okay, he was the archaeologist who went looking for Troy and found it <laughs> against all the hecklers and all the people who told him he was mad for trying to chase after fairy tales. Well, well uh, I read this book 
when I was there in fourth grade. And I just wanted to do what Heinrich Schliemann had done. I wanted to, to get on a plane, go to a foreign country, put a spade into the earth and turn up something wonderful. Uh, so I wanted to be an archaeologist. And I, I my, my parents kind of indulged me and, and bought all kinds of books, big picture books, coffee table books about the ancient world. And... Uh, and, and I, I would devour these things. And as I grew up, I, I discovered that archaeologists had to work really hard. And it was kind of tedious work, you know, that they had to poke around with a toothpick and a toothbrush and that sort of thing. And, and many times they do this for months and not really find anything. <laughs> so that didn't seem so like so much fun. But I, I did, I did uh, continue reading the ancients. And as I, um, as I, as I kind of had a, uh, an awakening in my faith, I wanted to read uh, the the ancient Christian writers, and so I started reading the fathers of the church. I uh, became especially fascinated with the writers of the first generation. We call them the apostolic fathers. Uh, so, uh, I, I was I, I was working in the technological field, and uh, and on a press check once I was in this in Indiana on a press check, and I. I happened to meet the editors of our Sunday Visitor newspaper, and they, and, and we hit it off. Um, and uh, they they asked me to start doing some writing for the newspaper on the side. I started doing writing on the side. The publisher at that time was Bob Lockwood, who who was a great history buff, and so we really connected on this subject. Uh, we had a lot of conversations and. He decided that he wanted someone to write a book on the fathers of the church. And he asked me to do it. And I told him I shouldn't do it because I didn't have the academic degrees. I I never went to graduate school, never wanted to. And uh, and he said, no, what, we want someone to do for the fathers what you do for all these other subjects to 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 make them understandable, to uh, to help people to find an imaginative entry into their world. And so I wrote my book, The Fathers of the Church. I think Bob was just trying to fill a niche in his product line. Um, <laughs> And he thought it would be there as kind of a service to everyone. But but uh, we discovered that there is a market for books about the fathers. That ended up being my best-selling book ever. And it's still in print. It's now in its third edition. Mm -hmm. And and I've written about 75 other books. And I think about 60 of them have been about the church fathers. So if, I, if, if publishers are asking me to write these books, and people are reading them yeah, yeah. <laughs> because they don't ask otherwise. And, uh, and, and, and I think it's great. It's taken me totally by surprise that there are people as nerdy as I am and into the same, the same obscure things that I am. That's that's funny that you phrased it that way. That is the main reason that we invited you to come talk to us today, because so much of your work can be of tremendous value and assistance to us, the Colby families, as we are working through this curriculum to, to supplement what our students are learning to for the parents who are learning alongside their students who have to kind of go seek out some extra to sort of wrap our minds around what we are encountering, maybe for the first time or maybe for the first time in a long time. So I'm, I'm, I'm just very grateful that, that your work exists. So <laughs> well, thank you. That's very kind. Yeah. Um, tell us a bit about the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology and what you're up to there. Well, the St. Paul Center uh, is uh, is an institution that that uh, Scott Hahn and I and his wife, Kimberly, co-founded in 2001, and it's been going strong ever since. We just built a building from the ground up, and its, uh, it's uh, ribbon cutting will be on January 25th, the, fe the feast of the uh, the conversion of St. Paul. So uh, so that's a big day for, for us after all these years, 23 years of, uh, of building it up from nothing. It started out, you know, with just us hanging around in Scott's house and, uh, <laughs> and we, we went from there. It promotes biblical literacy for all Catholics and biblical fluency for Catholic uh, preachers and teachers, uh, the priests, deacons, seminarians and those who teach the seminary so we have we have special conferences we have uh we have all kinds of events we cooperate with franciscan university on their annual conferences and, and uh we we do some some presentations there and um and we have a lot of online resources for people uh, we started out with free online bible studies and we those took off 
those took off and we found that we were all over the world instantly. There were seminaries in Africa using our free online Bible studies as their scripture curriculum. We found that um, Mother Teresa's sisters were using our free online Bible studies uh, for their novitiate. And uh, we found there were there were um, American military personnel on mountaintops in Afghanistan who were leading Bible studies after beaming down our our uh, our, our our guides and uh, and so we started out with that we have a lot of video offerings now and audio and all kinds of things and we have a publishing house so it's really expanded a lot since we first started in 2001 it certainly has yeah we have had the great joy of visiting with a a, few, a couple of a few authors who have books published through the St. Paul Center uh, we just recently visited with Katie Bogner and Sherry Van Branken about their new book on Advent and Christmas. And a little further back, we visited with Emily Stimson Chapman about um, some projects she had in the works at the time and have since been made available to the public. So I will link those episodes in our show notes. I also want to hear about your musical side. Tell me about that. <laughs> I didn't know I had it until <laughs> recently. Uh, but um, uh, when I was, this is, I guess around the, the around the turn of the century, I was in Italy on a pilgrimage, and um, and the rock and roll singer Dion, one of the first inductees in the the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, uh, was was on the same pilgrimage. So uh, so we were there together. He was there with his wife Susan, and we got to know each other uh, over the course of of the week or ten days or whatever it was, and uh, we became good friends. And for a n- number of years, we just talked on the phone several times a week and and uh, we got chances to visit each other uh, here and there uh, he he lives near my brother in Florida and so whenever I visited my brother I'd visit Dion um, well uh, you know around 2010 I think we we uh, we worked together on his memoir and that was published by servant books still in print uh, and um, and when we were finished with the memoir uh, one day, he left a message on my answering machine and he he just uh, said a line, he repeated it and he said, I want to sing that line in a song and you're going to write that song. <laughs> <laughs> so I kind of knew what he was doing. Uh, he was daring me to write a song. And so I did. And at the time, Dion's uh, lyricist uh, was ill. He had, Dion had worked with him for 30 years and uh, the guy was ill. So Dion was recording an album of covers and then uh, after after he I, I wrote that song, he loved it. Uh, we did another song the next morning and then another one uh, soon after that. And he decided to do an album of all new music. And we worked together on that album. It's called Tank Full of Blues. It came out in 2011. And since then, we've done five albums together. Two of them were double records. Uh, our, two tw- our 2020 album, uh, blues with friends was number one on billboards uh blues chart for the year and uh we were nominated for a bma a blues music association award that year and um and yeah it's been kind of a kind of a wild ride so uh our songs that we've written together have been performed or recorded by uh, bruce springsteen uh, van morrison jeff beck um, Eric Clapton. Um, I'm trying to think of others. Uh, it's a long list of uh, of people who've recorded our songs. Peter Frampton, Ricky Lee Jones, a lot of the people I grew up listening to. Wow. Wow. I was d- delighted to discover that as I was preparing it for this episode. I'm like, really? Um, so we're hoping this conversation can be an aid to our listeners, a help to our Colby families working through the curriculum, uh, curious onlookers, as I like to say, even if you're not doing the Colby curriculum, just have an interest in these topics. So Jordan, your areas of study and expertise overlap quite a lot with Mike's. For those unfamiliar, Jordan, though, would you say a bit about your background? So I, I studied history and literature of ancient Christianity in um, in Germany is where, you know, we, my wife and I moved and we became Catholic over there. And, and so much of it had to do with with history. And I, I had when, when I was converting, I had people asking me, um, you know what do you, what do you think about this topic maybe a moral a moral question or whatever and i just started referring everything whatever the catechism says because the my my conversion was based on historically seeing for myself doing academic research that the church 
preceded the, the Bible, which is it's funny that it's it's so obvious from this side of things, but it wasn't to me, and I'm sure it's not to everyone out there who are who are not Catholic. You know, the Protestants uh, they try to build their church out of the Bible, and I did that for years. I think it's a uh, you know I think it's a natural thing when you when all you have is the Bible. Um, I I so your interest in history and then your 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 I guess mission now sort of with the the St. Paul Center to promote biblical literacy. I wanted to ask about how history plays into that. Well, uh, you know, Cardinal Newman said to be deep in history is to cease to be a Protestant, right? And uh, and and I've seen that happen to people over and over and over again. And so many of the the great. Uh, scholars in the field that you and I are most interested in have kind of walked that path. You know, when you think of people like Robert Louis Wilkin and a lot of the names on the bindings behind me here, uh, they they started out by studying the church fathers and eventually they found their way to the Catholic church. Uh, it, it seems that they they found, you know, something that they recognized in the church. And, and I always tell people, they, you know, even non-Catholics, when they say, where should I begin? In, in reading the fathers of the church, I always say, begin with that first generation, begin with the apostolic fathers, read Clement of Rome and read Ignatius of Antioch. It's not a lot to read, but you know what? Once you get into those, those documents, once you get into those texts, what you find is a church that looks an awful lot like your Catholic parish, you know, it, it's, it's a, it's a church that has bishops, priests, and deacons. It's a church that looks to Rome for leadership. It's a church that, um, that is gathered around the Eucharist and that, uh, believes that Jesus is true God and true man. These are settled questions by 107 AD. Perhaps they, they were never questions at all. They were just carried forward in continuity from the time of our Lord's ascension, from the time of the Pentecost until 107 AD, when Ignatius of Antioch wrote his letters, you know, to, to, uh, to, the, to the churches and just mentions these things in, in passing. Ignatius has arguments about a few things, but most things he doesn't argue. He just assumes assumes that we have this common experience of the church. And so he's just talking about it all in passing. And it looks like my little parish in Bridgeville, Pennsylvania. Even the problems look like the problems in my little parish in Bridgeville, Pennsylvania. Man, I, I always, one of the things like, especially at the, um, like in the universities and <clears throat> is, is that they present early Christianity now as, as, as it was all chaos, just chaos. <laughs> and it, it, it mirrors um, evolution. I, th I think that's why. I think that they're, yeah. they're mirroring evolution. Chaos becomes order eventually. But you're right. When you look into it, it it's amazing how there's there's like three people separating Irenaeus, who's, who's pretty far out there, all yes. the way back to one of the apostles. And I've done... I've done a lot of my writing with um, the book of Philemon. I say it Philemon. I can't break the habit. Philemon, mm -hmm. Philemon. But the, um, you bring up Ignatius of Antioch and his letter to the Ephesian church there. And, and in my in my research, I, I I argue that Onesimus, the slave in Philemon, became the bishop of of um, of Ephesus. And and but even if even, you know, we here we have, you know, we have Ignatius writing and referring to the bishop of that church as Onesimus. And <laughs> I, I'm I'm arguing that it's the same person. There's like ah. a thousand thousand to one against me, but out there. But I, I still think I'm right. <laughs> but I'd, I'd love I think, to read it. <laughs> yeah. 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 Yes. It, I, I think that it's the same guy. And it it's if you look deeply, you can see these traces of 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 this line or of this connection that appears historically there. And it, um, that, that really, that changed, that changed my life. It actually oh, wow. changed my life. I became Catholic because of some of, you know, some of these evidences. So what, uh, what, it, what encouragement or what, what advice might you give um, maybe someone from the outside, somebody who's not quite, quite Catholic yet, but they're very interested in the Bible how can they can they see the church in the scriptures or where should they look as far as uh, finding the, the early church? 
I think they can, they, they can see the church in the scriptures. It will be difficult because they have been conditioned to see the scriptures in a different way, uh, to imagine the world of the New Testament in a different way. Uh, so they have to find a, a, an imaginative entry into that world as it was, you know, if I may sound triumphalistic and arrogant. Uh, but um, But how do you do that? How do you do that? There's no window I can open. You know, I can watch sword and sandal movies, but they're they're not real, you know, they're not realistic in any way. So what can they what can they do to get that that um that that doorway, that window into the ancient world? And and I found that you can read the writings of others who were writing very close to the time of Saint Paul, very close to the 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 act the very acts of the apostles. You can read those documents and find out how those people viewed the church of the New Testament, the church of the acts of the apostles. How did they see it? Well, they saw it as something very much like, again, your Catholic parish in your town, wherever you live. Uh, that's the way they saw it. Well, you know, eventually you ask yourself, why is that so? Why was that the way uh, Polycarp read it, and Ignatius, and then Irenaeus, and then Tertullian, and and into the second century, Origen and Hippolytus, and all of these other these other great writers? We have a lot of writings from that period. Look at you know um, behind me, it's the same thing in front of me. What I'm looking at in front of me, uh, uh, you can read an awful lot from that period and and find that imaginative entry into it. Um, and get to know the people of that era, and then go back and read the New Testament in light of what you've discovered in your in your readings in antiquity. I think that's the best way to do it, because when I see when when some people read the Acts of the Apostles and they read Chapter Two, they see Pentecostal phenomena that look like they you know they they saw they see in their Pentecostal church church, but what I see is Catholicity on the first Pentecost, literally Catholicity, universality, because Luke is careful to tell us that we're, there were people from every corner of the earth, you know, all of these people from all of these, these, uh, these different countries had come to Jerusalem for the feast. So this is a Catholic moment. There's a, the, the church that you find there is one holy Catholic and apostolic. And, um, and you find that what is that church about? What do they do when they enter that church? Well, they they practice the sacraments. How many? There were thousands baptized on that day, we're told. And what do they do once they were baptized? How did they live their life after that? Well, we're told uh, Acts two forty two that um that that the, the the church dedicated itself to the teaching of the apostles and the communion, the breaking of the bread and the prayers. Well, what do we do in our worship? We dedicate ourselves as the church to the teaching of the apostles and the communion, the breaking of the bread and the prayers. We listen to the readings, the teachings of the, the apostles. Uh, you know, we we receive communion and we have fellowship with one another. Uh, and, and, and we have that fellowship in the breaking of the bread and the prayers. So um, so you go back and you read the Acts of the Apostles and you see it in a different way. Uh, you see it in a Catholic way because that's the way the fathers of the first, second, third century saw it. Man, that that that's the idea of perspective and this imaginative perspective. All of that is 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 really fascinating to me. One of the things that helped me on my journey was I was assigned by a professor to look for evidences of Jesus, um, the, extra biblical evidences of Jesus, ex, extra ecclesiastical, ecclesiastical. You might even say because he wanted me to look in the historical documents and. All that's been done. It's already been done. Yes, he was probably right. just sending me on a, a rabbit a rabbit trail of some <laughs> kind to get me off his back. But what what meant a lot to me um, was seeing the that Saint one Saint Paul quotes the Eucharistic words of Jesus in First Corinthians, but then also seeing that there really isn't that much evidence for the historical Jesus that they've always been um, looking for, unless you're inside the church. And, and, and it makes perfect sense that if you read the church fathers, it's everywhere because that is that that is the place that is that is where those who have eyes to see all of those gospel passages come true, that it, it's inside the church, which started small. And the Jesus's own significance is is 
bound up in the same way that he gave his, himself uh, into the hands of humans. It, it's bound up with the church also. So as the church becomes becomes more and more significant, so does Christ. And and you see those two things together. Yes. And I was going to mention with the um, <clears throat> with you know I I most of my teaching career I, I always want to teach New Testament and early church history. I never get opportunities to do it. Even here at Colby, if the administrators are listening, uh, please give me a class. They, but it's always I teach Greek and Latin everywhere. I teach at Magdalen College. That's a noble also. thing, yeah. It's a, and it's great. It's great. I don't have to grade papers, and I get to deal with the languages all day long. So yeah. it's been good. But it's forced me to read lots of pagan literature, like forever, and that's actually been good for me to see then the distinction between when something new happens at the incarnation and, yes. and how the world changes. And yes. so, so those church fathers, you're right. They're like our local parish, the, the communities they belong to, and that we all live in this new world that Jesus, that Jesus brought in through his life and death and resurrection, which it's not there in the pagan world. So that contrast exactly. is interesting to me. And I, I wonder if your, your dealings in ancient history, if you, encountered the same sort of experience yes yes yes, yes. uh i love i love what you're saying and uh what, what i've found that's been so startling is that is that the uh the pagan world has been mostly forgotten people don't know what it was like they have they have kind of crazy ideas about what it was like they just imagine a world where christianity suddenly is gone you know we don't have to deal with that pesky church anymore uh but but what we find is a world that has never heard of human rights, human equality, human dignity, all of these things. It's a world where there has never been an institution like the hospital, the hospice, the hostel, all of these things that were invented by Christianity and became ubiquitous. The university, all of these things were invented by the church because they they presume that everyone, everyone is concerned for the other. Okay, they presume uh, the substrate of charity, and that 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 there are a lot of people around who are willing to practice this charity to live for the good of others. There were no hospitals, for example, until there were people who were willing to lay down their lives for others and risk taking on a disease. And and those were the monks and nuns of the of the fourth century. Even before that, it was the lay Christians and St. Cyprian and Carthage, who were willing to, to um, uh, in, who were willing in a time of plague to treat not only the Christian sick, but also the pagans who were persecuting them. So these Christian doctors had to, had to give treatment to the pagans who were, were killing their family members, okay? Here, it's it's the situation that you think would be impossible, and yet we brought about the impossible. All of these new institutions, all of these these um, these these principles, these philosophical principles, ethical principles that we now take for granted. You know, now we have all kinds of international organizations who adjudicate battlefield ethics. There were no battlefield ethics in the ancient world. If you won, you did what you wanted. You took what you wanted. Uh, human cargo, you know, the, the the treasure of a place. You burned what you wanted because you were the winners and victims were losers. All of these ideas we have today of victims' rights and other things. We take these things for granted. You know, in, in, in the ancient world, victims had no dignity. They were considered losers. Christianity brought about a revolution. That's something you, you learn by reading the Church Fathers. You, you, you learn that Jesus changed everything, right? And that's what you, you're discovering now or, or what's being reinforced by as you're reading the pagans of that time. Because you're saying, whoa, that's a different world. It's a world I never want to live in, right? It's a cruel world. Tom Holland, the historian, wrote this great book. Uh, Dominion. Dominion, yes. Yep. It, was, it, was, uh, it was a New York Times bestseller. Holland's not a believer. But what he said was that it's the Christian revolution that made life bearable in the world. It brought about some degree of happiness to people, and he demonstrates it in the course of a book that's like a cinder block. It's a good book. It is a good book that the, the place that that I, you know, one quick illustration, you brought it up with hospital and enemy and some of these things. 
hostess, the word hostess, the word for hostile enemy in Latin. Um, and, and the idea that, that, uh, that is totally gone. We don't have a hostile enemy that can be totally dehumanized in our world now. And we give ourselves credit for this as though we just discovered it, but that was a Christian. It, it only came after Christianity in the pre-Christian world. There was nothing but like pocketed, isolated communities that could dehumanize the Germans across the Rhine or whatever. They are not human. They're lower than human. They're not like us. And I, I couldn't believe, I felt in a way reading, reading that book, Dominion, it, it reinforced so many things, but it felt like it was reading me in a way. And, and also talking, you know, talking to the people that give themselves credit for this world that they think that they've, they've built. So I, I don't want to, I don't want to hog, it looks like Stephen has something to jump in here, but I, I want to come back to a question about this, uh, about this with you in, in a, in a minute here, Mike, if you don't mind. But Stephen, did you have something? Well, I'm I'm enjoying the conversation here, so I, I don't have to jump in at all. But you know, a lot of these things are just. I think you're just touching on points that that have that are really resonating. You know, because like I think about as a convert myself, but but jumping like from the bio, the scriptures to basically to Saint Augustine. You know, just to, and I leave. There's a big gap. You know, of of what's going on there, or then to Saint Thomas. You know, the the, these powerhouses of theologians in the church. But as you're talking, it's in, okay. So I've got that. And then you've got like what's happening in the scriptures where you're talking about everything being explained and things during the, in between the resurrection and the, and the ascension, and then the Holy spirit coming down. And, you know, with some of our work with charisms, also just this recognition that those things kind of fade fairly quickly, this, this life that where people really live their faith in a, in a different way, but you're just seeing that and thinking, as you mentioned with uh, evolution, this idea that we kind of get stuck on almost when, when it comes to doctrine, that it's being built up rather than being defined and clarified. And, and I think that's, that was just kind of coming out to me as you were talking that it's contained there. And so it's, it's, the, it's best to go back there but then you know heresies come up and all of these things and so somebody has to kind of delineate and, and break apart but it's not a building it's a oh yeah splitting you know kind I, of thing. I, a better metaphor for me would be the like the big bang you know that there in the time of the new testament it's like very very dense matter that suddenly just explodes out in every direction and it develops as it explodes it doesn't become something else it doesn't become something new it becomes itself right it it uh it's this cosmos that's uh that's developing as time goes on even the fathers themselves so the fathers didn't look at the past as something static and that just had to be preserved in mothballs it was something that was being lived every day it was being proclaimed in the liturgy and it was being learned at the liturgy it's mostly conveyed through worship. You know, that's where the faith was being proclaimed and received and passed on to the next generation. So this idea, um, this this idea with the what we've become and and all these institutions and all that that are based on Christian things that, that were never in the in the pagan world before that distinction almost nobody really sees it. Historians or whatever, they have this different view that that they don't see the significance and and my 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 take has been that um you know paganism collapsed that, that should people should be much more interested in that than they actually are like the the actual crumbling it took time but it was the slow decline and even at saint augustine's time he's saying um god leads the proud into decay and they don't even know that it's happening and yeah. these kind of things but it's gone i, I don't see paganism even in Germany with the dorky uh, neo-pagans doing their little thing, I, there's no power in it. Like there's, no. it's not a real, it's not a real threat. I think in, in my view of looking at history, I think the last uh, time that it reared its head may have been like with the regimes of the, of the 20th century, where they tried to say, no, let's be strong enough to go back. Let's be pagan. Like they were, let's be strong enough to make victims or whatever. Um, and it, they couldn't sustain it, so it, 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 you know, it lost. So, in that situation, I'm looking at uh, like the modern world and wokeism and all these current terms and the way that it acts 
as uh, as maybe a, a Christian heresy in a way? Is it too much to to call it that? Holland, uh, Tom Holland says it is. <laughs> you know, Tom Holland says that uh, that there have been very few honest men in the last two hundred years since the Enlightenment. He said the two honest men he can think of are the Marquis de Sade and Friedrich Nietzsche, because they believed there was no God, and they followed that logic to its consequences, right? And, uh, and, 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 and you don't want to think too hard about the lives they lived and the madness that they lived, that they endured, and in a sense that they chose. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's craziness. And, and I think that, uh, that, 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 the way Holland explores it, he 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 speaks of of um, of communism, for example, as a Christian heresy. Um, in, in in whenever I write about uh, Julian the Apostate, the the great Roman emperor uh, of the uh, fourth century, the mid fourth century, he was an ex Christian and he hated Christianity. He mostly hated Christianity because it was Christians who killed his dad. You know, and his his cousins and his uncles. It, you know, the the emperors wanted to remove all the other male members of the of the royal family so that they could be sure that there were no palace coups, right? So you get rid of everybody. Well, they let Julian live because he was just a little boy. So why why kill him? And Julian lived to adulthood, became uh, became emperor for less than two years. But in that those two years, he tried to turn the empire upside down and make it. <laughs> make paganism great again right he we tried to bring it all back but he saw that it had no strength of its own so he reinvented paganism uh in the image and likeness of the catholic church he made sure it had bishops and priests and deacons and institutional charities all of these things that had never existed in the true pagan past he he reinvented paganism to make it look like the catholic church uh and I, I said he was like um I, I've said that he's like he's like Hazel Motes in the Flannery O'Connor novel Wise Blood. Uh, Motes invents a, a new religion called the Church without Christ. That's what uh that's what what Julian the Apostate tried to make the Church without Christ. Uh, and, but then then the a scam artist goes after Hazel Motes in the O'Connor novel. And he's trying to get a piece, a financial piece of this new religion, because he sees, you know, there's money to be made, but he can't understand it as a religion. So he he keeps garbling the name, and the name he settles on is the Holy Church of Christ without Christ. And that's what Julian wanted, the Holy Church of Christ without Christ. That's what the communists wanted. They wanted the Holy Church of Christ without Christ. And that's what wokeness really wants. The Holy Church of Christ without Christ. We want everybody to be nice. These signs on, on lawns out, out here, kindness always, be kind always, all that stuff. What we want is charity with no, but we don't want to get it from the divine source, which is charity itself. You know, we want it to be man-made charity. And whenever you want man-made charity, there's somebody out there who's going to sell you something that looks like it. And that's what we're seeing right now. The Holy Church of Christ without Christ. Man, that's awesome. I I, I hadn't thought about Julian as as being representing like this proto-wokeism or whatever. I, I've been toying with the idea for a long time of writing a, an article on, uh, well, for a long time for me as a a couple weeks <laughs> probably is a little long. I've been thinking about it, but writing an article on Marcion, Marcion of Sinope, but mm. Marcion was woke. It was the idea because he was, yeah. uh, you know, they were celibate and, and that's how they ended up. And, but what I've, what I've, what I've always thought with Marcion that, that was so interesting is they always say he was anti-Semitic because he throws out the old Testament, but I've, I've reviewed a ton of books on him and I've written several chapters about him and I'm not, tracking just with that idea my my thought is more that he rejected anything that was the old world anything pre-christ he, he rejected it so it doesn't matter if it was from the israelite religion or if it was from paganism whatever he rejected it to this new thing and he had this idea of going much further than than his uh, beloved saint paul into the future so far into the future, maybe 2000 years to where we are now, where they're not having children 
it's only a poaching institution and um, it looks very much like Christianity, but there's all these things that are, that are blatantly off that, that people can see. So I, man, I don't know if you've, if you've uh, done much with Marcion, but I, I love the idea of any of these figures that, that if our listeners would go back and, and, and read something like how, how can they maybe see themselves or see their neighbors in these people? <laughs> I, I look at Marcion and I see somebody from my my childhood, uh, George Steinbrenner, who owned the Yankees, right? Steinbrenner made his fortune in shipbuilding, just as Marcion did. Marcion had a lot of money and Steinbrenner bought a team and made it great and won the World Series every year until baseball was was boring. You know, it was, it was a bot game, you know, and uh, and that's that's what 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 Steinbrenner made it. Um uh, Marcion wanted to be the Marcion wanted to do for the Catholic Church what George Steinbrenner did for the Yankees, right? He went he went uh, to to Rome with all that money and he made lavish contributions to the church and uh and he he started to buy influence and he started to um to make his way for his new religion. You're right, I think in in saying it was a, it was a new religion. It's a new way of looking at the world. Um and uh, and the church had to give the money back, you know, because because it was very clear what he was doing. and It was very clearly not what the church was doing. I mean, think of his contemporaries. You have you have people like Polycarp of Smyrna, who's who's really grounded in the apostolic tradition, who was a disciple of St. John the Evangelist himself. You know, you don't find Polycarp talking the way Marcion did. Think of Justin Martyr. Who, who looked into even pagan antiquity and everywhere he saw seeds of the word. And, uh, and he had this great line, whatever is good is ours, right? He looked into the great writers of, um, of, of Greek antiquity, for example, like Plato and Aristotle. And he said, whatever you find in them that's good, it already belongs to us, you know, because, because they're working with the word. The divine word in its seed form there in the world, uh, they were preparing the way for Jesus Christ, even though they had no idea what they were what they were groping toward. Uh, so, uh, so, so, yeah, Marcion is a fascinating figure. He's one of these people who would be like Julian, a great, a great subject of a novel. Well, I could talk to Mike forever, and I know, but I don't want to derail things. So, Bonnie, if you want to, I don't know if you want to get back on uh, back on track with no, the, it's great. Sorry. Um, did, Stephen, did you have something you wanted to say? Are you good? Yeah, I'm still just enjoying. Yeah, so, that's great. Uh, soaking it all up. I, this, yes. So you have a note here, Jordan. Um, orthodoxy and heresy in the first centuries. What? What? Could you say more about that and what you were? I. I. I no, I think I. Got, I kind of just wanted to start talking a bit about Marcion. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And, and then Mike. Mike uh, he told it. Told it perfectly. So. You know. He brings up a good point, just in that little phrase, orthodoxy versus heresy in that time. Uh, secular academia uh, really liked in the last century to uh, to speak of Christianities rather than Christianity, as if there were all of these players in the religious market. Uh, that, you know, there were all different kinds of Christianity and they were all competing in the same way. But that's not the case when you really get into the texts. When you really get into the documents, what you find that there was Christianity. There were no denominations. Everybody knew which church was the church, right? It was this great mainstream of the bishops, right? They were gathered around their bishops. They knew who the bishop was, and that's where they could find the true church that had come from the apostles in the laying on of hands, just as we see it in the Acts of the Apostles and in the, uh, the pastoral epistles of the New Testament. There were not really Christianities. What we had every now and then was a parasite on the church. So we had these Gnostic heresies rising up even in the first century and into the second and third centuries. Uh, and, and what they do is they wouldn't evangelize. What they do is they draw people from within the church to their secret teaching, which you usually had to pay to get, right? So you, you go for the secret teaching and they're drawn away from the great rabble of Christianity. So it was something attractive to the very wealthy because they had money to pay for this stuff, right? And they didn't want to be like the rabble. They wanted to be distinguished 
from everyone else and get the secret teaching. If I can buy it, I'm going to buy it. And so this is going on in the first century already. And we see it in the second century. And there's kind of, it's starting to spread by the end of that century. So Irenaeus writes his great book against heresies, and he's calling them out. He's saying, Jesus didn't, didn't put secrets here on earth. He gave a public revelation. He spoke to multitudes, the one gospel, you know, there's there's no difference really between the gospel he was giving to to his disciples and the one that he was speaking to the multitude he was maybe being a little clearer with his disciples because he thought they could handle it um but then it, after that what we find is this great uh this great mainstream of christianity uh that's identified by the bishops and that's what Irenaeus said. Irenaeus is the one who taught us to look for those three things, the scripture, right? Which is a public revelation. Nobody's got a hidden book in the back pocket. That's the real doctrine of Jesus, the way some of the Gnostics were claiming. It's a public revelation. If you want the book, you can find it. You can read it. The other thing that's public is the name of the bishop. So you can look to him and know that you're getting the goods, all right? That you are getting the sacraments that have come down in a line from the apostles and the magisterium, right? So you have you have this active teaching authority in the bishops. All of it is um is public scripture, tradition, and magisterium. Tradition is 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 really carried down through the liturgy, through the bishops, through the clergy, from generation to generation. Um, people put down ritual sometimes, but ritual is invaluable, you know, because it's um it's something that teaches by repetition all your life. All your life, you've learned how to praise God because you have chanted the Gloria almost every Sunday, except during Advent and Lent, but you've chanted the Gloria all those years. So you know how to praise God because the liturgy just had made you rehearse it every Sunday until you learned how to do it. So those words are all, they're, they're part of your, your nerves, your fibers, your muscle. Uh, it's a great thing that the liturgy does. Anyway. This is what distinguishes us from the heretics. And uh, and that's something that we learned just by reading the fathers and their concerns. There were no there were no Christianities. There was Christianity, and then there were these these weak imitations. And the weak imitations all died of their own accord. You have amazing claims in secular scholars like Elaine Pagels in the last century. You know, she she said that they went away because the church ruthlessly suppressed them, you know put them down. Look, for the first three centuries, the church was being ruthlessly suppressed. It had no power to put anybody down. It had no power to do anything about these supposed rivals. As a matter of fact, those rivals were not being persecuted because the pagans knew that they were they were that they were weak and 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 they were not the real thing. So they didn't bother persecuting the Gnostics. You didn't find Gnostics dying for the faith and Christians didn't persecute them either. Christians just called them out and showed them to be false. Man, the, that the finding uh, those similarities and differences between the two, even externally, is is really interesting. The Gnostics had to they had to die out eventually. But what what I again talking about Marcion, his was so was so very similar. Like they had, they didn't have an extra book, everything that they had a shortened, like a reduced version, which yes. so that it was like the and Luke's then gospel also, edited plus yeah. a, some bits and pieces of Paul's letters. Yeah. Yes. A, a part of Paul and, and Luke's a shorter version of Luke. Then they had, um, there was a, a warning. I forget who did it, which Bishop did it, but warned travelers when they go into a town to inquire whether or not it's the church was Marcionite or Catholic. Uh, Cyril so of Jerusalem in the fourth century. That's who did that. So in the fourth century, Marcionism is enduring, you know, so you can see the heresies might stick around. They might linger for a while, but eventually they run out of steam and they run out of money. One of the things that just keeps coming up again, as we've talked about this development is that, um, it's, I think maybe a, a flaw in ours is that we keep uh, our mind, maybe or people today, that you think of the church maybe as this buildup of ideas and concepts and development. But one of the things that I just keep thinking back to the, like, I think St. Paul runs across some disciples of St. John the Baptist, and they've received 
baptism, but not the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But they're kind of in union to, I mean, the ideas are, 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 are similar, but he, he insists that they're baptized yes. with the Holy Spirit. So you see the church is not, I mean, so this idea here, like you're saying with the big bang idea, it's not this building up of ideas or people manipulating things. It's the Holy Spirit, you know, it's the, it's this, this thing coming through. So of course it's there at the beginning. It's just, it's, I, it's becoming obvious. I don't know why I haven't, didn't have these thoughts an hour ago, but uh, it's, it's good. This has been a fabulous conversation. I've, as I said, I've, I've been aware of you for a while. I happened upon your podcast that you worked on for a while called the way of the fathers. And you have episodes on many of the church fathers and early figures, many of whom have come up today. Um, when my first full-time music director job a long time ago, the pastor emeritus had a particular fondness for St. Polycarp. So that was one of the first episodes I went straight to just to <laughs> understand him, you know, to get to know him better because of this, of this dear pastor emeritus had such a devotion. It just uh, meant so much to him. So that was a nice connection to, to there. And, and I have found these episodes, this podcast series, which he worked on for a while uh, to be a great resource as I'm trying to understand what my student, my children are studying in their Colby study. So um, I'm hopeful that that is a great resource to our listeners among your many other offerings. So you have your own website and the St. Paul center's website, the way of the father's podcast, any other resources you want to mention as we're drawing our conversation to a close. You'll find the best prices on my books at catholicbooksdirect.com catholicbooksdirect.com my son's business but he really strives to put all my books together just search on my name and you get my page and um and you get all the books at the best prices there wonderful so that sounds like you have it's neat that you have your children involved in in your work so this book that i mentioned earlier um, a history of the church 100 objects you worked on with your daughter and and that's yeah. wonderful i love that now she she can she can deal with uh, graduate studies and unlike her dad uh, <laughs> so she's she's studying uh, the history of science right now at oxford so, oh, um, wow. so that, but that, that I, I got on, got in on the ground floor there. She, uh, she did that with me when she was an undergraduate. Okay. Listeners, a lot of things have come up during the course of this conversation that we are going to link to in our show notes. So please be sure to check those with several Colby cast episodes that have come up and that are relevant to our conversation today. And of course, ways to find Mike Aquilina's work online, his books, his podcast, so forth. So check those out. Mike, what a pleasure this has been. Thanks so much for coming to visit with us. Oh, you're very kind. This is an honor. Subscribe to the Colby Cast on your favorite podcast app so that you don't miss an episode. And let us know how we're doing by leaving a rating or a review. And as always, feel free to email us at podcast at colby.org. Mary, our mother, pray for us. St. Maximilian Colby. St. Ignatius of Loyola, holy saints and angels, pray for us. Ad maiorem Dei Gloriam.